0: Good morning, all. It is good to be back. Sorry I deserted you last week. <clears throat> we were supposed to actually be out of town. We stayed in town and we just uh, just uh, sat around and were sick. <laughs> so, um, we sick. So today we're going to do session 11 of module one. This is theology proper three. Um, The Divine Attributes of God. We're going to start them today and we'll continue them in a couple of weeks. So let's pray and then we'll um, dive into this. Thank you, Father, for giving us a Bible which tells us who you are. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to guess. We simply read the transcendence and the magnificence and the glory of our great and mighty God. And I pray that this day we would engage our minds Lord that we would clear the cobwebs of the week and and of uh, hopefully a good night's rest last night and now engage our our thoughts, engage our minds to think um, deeply to think on things that are rich and that are difficult but are glorious. I pray that you would do that for us and with us this morning we pray in Christ's name amen. there is a school of thought uh, among pastors and even a lot of seminaries that says you shouldn't teach theology and there's usually two reasons given first of all because it's boring and the second reason is because it's divisive I would agree with the second one theology is divisive it divides the believers from the unbelievers and it should be anybody who says theology is boring I I, would you ever tell your wife that you know I love you but I don't really want to talk about you because you're boring Try that, guys. Just see how that goes over. Why would we tell our God that? I I love you, and I want you to zap me with blessing, and I want to think about you for five or six seconds every day, but I don't want to be weighted down with difficult, heavy concepts. If anything in life was ever worth engaging our minds to think deeply It should be about our God. And you think about this. The only things we know about God are revealed in the Word and in creation. But I will say this. Everything that we know about God from creation is also revealed in the Word. So everything we know about God is limited to a book that my copy is about an inch and a half thick. Do you honestly think that's everything there is to know about God? Can you imagine that we will learn attributes that that are described by words we don't even know? We will... For example, see colors that are beyond the spectrum of color that we have now in our view of God. And so um, it's incumbent upon us to know our God and to be those that think deeply about the Lord. So what that means at times is that everything can't just be glitzy and glamoury. We've got, I think I just made up a word, glamoury is now a word at Grace Bible Church. We just have to go through facts. And we have to go through understanding because it will have implications and applications. And so it's important to do this. And so the the classic way that we understand God is to define his attributes. What is he like? Now, before we uh, get to kind of the attributes, I want to talk to you about classifying the attributes because this is something that's common in theology. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to... to, um, Uh, know this or even take notes on this but a lot of work has gone into trying to classify the attributes of God and I just want to give you some examples and again you don't have to know these some will classify the attributes of God as communicable versus incommunicable meaning attributes we can imitate versus attributes we can't imitate like we can't imitate omni anything we can't imitate the omnipresence of God Uh, The the all-knowing nature of God, the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful nature of God, and so forth. And so, that's a pretty classic division, communicable versus incommunicable. Uh, Another division is observable versus non-observable. I don't even know who came up with that, but it's a little odd because we can't know anything that's non-observable. Um, and none of us have ever observed God. We've only read about Him and seen the evidence of His existence. So I'm not sure I would even even use that one. Uh, Others classify the divine attributes as absolute versus relative, meaning the absolute attributes of God are not His relational attributes. The relative attributes are how He relates, that His love, for example, would be a relative attribute. Others will say that they're the moral versus non-moral attributes of God. I don't understand that one either because how can there be, how can there be anything about God that's non-moral? Um, that makes no sense at all. So I want to be careful about categories. They're, the, the categories you accept, I think they affect your conclusions about God. It's better just to let Scripture speak. Now, we're not going to use broad categories like that. We will use some specific categories. They're logical, and they'll make sense to you. Um, we're going to use, for example, one category that may be unfamiliar to you. Rather than saying God is love, we're going to say that God is omnibenevolent, and His love is part of that, and you'll see why in a moment. But I just wanted to tell you that you'll read in theologies, and you'll read in your study Bibles, They'll um, Theologians will just use those words. Oh, this is an incommunicable attribute of God. And you're like, what is, that, what is that from? Well, that's a theological construct that is man-made. So we just want to be careful about that. Big picture, where do we start? We have to start with the introductory concept of the transcendence and immanence of God. Now, I think this is a great place to start. The transcendence of God basically says that this is how God is above us, that he is different from us, that he is far beyond us, the imminence of God says how God is with us and how he is um, relating to his creation. So I think this is a, this is a huge concept <clears throat> because, um, for example, in ancient times, some gods were viewed as only transcendent and other gods were viewed as only imminent. And you didn't really, you, you had to, that's why you had to have lots of different gods. You had to pick and choose from them. But our God, the true and living God is transcendent. He is far above us. We would not know him if he had not revealed himself to us. He's also imminent. He has made himself known to us. So the goal here isn't to balance those two. Uh, I heard, a, I actually heard a preacher in the last couple of weeks say that Jesus was 50% God and 50% man. I was like, how can you be 50% God and not be fully God? No, we want to be 100% transcendent is God and 100% imminent is our God. And so we don't balance them, we just express both of them. And of course, the transcendence and the imminence of God are best expressed in whom? In the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both. Both are expressed in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. There's his transcendence. Who inhabits eternity. How do you inhabit eternity? That, that's, that blows our brain cells. Whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's the transcendence of God. The imminence of God. Jeremiah twenty three twenty three. Am I a God at hand? Meaning right next to you, declares the Lord. And not a God far away. The statement here is that he's both. So transcendence and imminence. If that's all you remember about today, I think that will increase your worship. That will increase your love for the Lord to remember that he is transcendent. Um, American evangelicalism uh, believes in a 100% imminent God only evangelicalism in America says what can God do for me since he's right by me Jesus is my co-pilot Jesus take the wheel all of that sort of ridiculous theology that doesn't focus on the transcendence of God on the flip side you can become so incredibly academic and intellectual that you focus only on the transcendence of God a little hint if you read a, a book of theology And you get to the end and you say, this was so big that I didn't understand a word. It was badly written. Blame the author. We are able to understand the transcendence of God, but it's always in conjunction with imminence. If you read about transcendence and it doesn't also talk to you about imminence, then you've missed something. What's the point of knowing a God who's nowhere near you? What is that point? There isn't a point to that. So transcendence, imminence, most thoroughly expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ let's start going through attributes and again we're going to do some categories but they're specific categories not overly broad categories first God is self-existent I'm gonna have to go faster because there's a lot God is self-existent with every one of these I'm going to give you a definition we're going to talk about it a little bit and then we will uh, see how it gets us, uh, forms a path to the cross. Because we always want to uh, have the attributes of God form that path to the cross for us. The self-existence of God, the definition. God depends on nothing else for existence, but has eternally existed without any external or prior cause. He is the uncaused cause. he's not tied to the universe metaphysically. So I, I think that's a good definition. This was formerly and still is by some called the doctrine of aseity um, from the Latin phrase ase, which just means from itself, that God is self-existent. Nothing made him. Genesis 1.1, he alone is the creator. He, he is not created And I know that that sounds very basic to us, but I I fear that the American evangelical church sometimes treats God as a created being. So we want to um, be clear about that. By the way, um, Psalm 33, six through nine gives a statement of God as creator and that this understanding what it should cause in mankind. What should it cause in mankind? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Here's the response. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So let's say this in the negative. Why would unbelievers want to denigrate God as creator and take away God as creator? Because God as creator creates worship and creates awe. So by removing God as creator, you have now removed the worship of God. He is prior to all things Colossians 1 15 through 17 all of creation is dependent on God's power but God is not dependent on creation this is the awesome thought of the fact that at any time before the cross the Lord Jesus Christ could have theoretically said to his father I'm done with this let's just let's just destroy everything because God would not have changed Nothing would have changed about God. All of the universe could be rolled up and burned up, and he could start over, and it wouldn't have affected him at all because he is self existent. He is self empowered. All right, here's a big category. We'll spend a little time on this. God is omnibenevolent. That's a big way of saying God is love, but we want to include some other categories in this because his love is expressed in so many ways. God is love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. One of the great Old Testament statements of the love of God, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, I want to give you this kind of cluster of divine attributes that really focus on the love of God. So we'll do a few of these here. First of all, God is compassionate. This is an outflow of his love. Um, In scripture, compassion is a, a synonym for his mercy. You can kind of exchange those two, his compassion and his mercy, kind of go back and forth together. The definition of his compassion, it is divine favor. To those in distress or misery as opposed to the judgment they deserve. It's not giving people what they deserve. What, What is grace? Grace is giving people what they don't deserve. Mercy, compassion is not giving people what they do deserve. So it's divine favor to those in distress or misery as opposed to the judgment they deserve. He has mercy on sinners. Hosea 11 when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son the more they were called the more they went away they kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols yet it was I who taught Ephraim that's a nickname for Israel taught Ephraim to walk I took them up by their arms but they did not know that I healed them God was holding up Israel even though they would re- they refused to give him credit refused to know that it was him he has mercy on his people Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And the question is, is, does he show compassion because you fear him, or do you fear him because he shows compassion? The answer is yes, to both. Jesus demonstrated mercy on earth. Luke 7.13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. You read the book of Luke, one of the sub-themes of the book of Luke is the fact that Jesus Christ, fully God, is compassionate. He's compassionate on those who have nothing to offer. Now, how does compassion form a path to the cross? Titus 3, 4, and 5, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, by according to His own mercy, His compassion, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, it is an accurate statement to say. If somebody asks you why would God save you, to simply say because He is merciful, that's it. Um, the, you know, our our beloved John Macarthur, I never will forget hearing a Q and A that he did. And somebody said, explain to me the theology of how someone actually comes to Christ. And, he, and they, that person probably expected an explanation of election and human responsibility. And John just said, you know, you ask. You just ask. Ask for mercy. Ask for God to be compassionate. Next question. And it was like applause everywhere. Because that simplifies it down to something that a three-year-old can understand. You're a sinner. Do you understand that? Yeah, you just spanked me. I get that. Ask God for mercy. That's, what, that's how we form a path to the cross. His compassion is why you're saved. Kind of the flip side of the coin, still under the love of God, the omnibenevolence of God, is the fact that God is gracious. It's the flip side of the coin because it's God showing goodness toward the ill-deserving, showing unmerited favor. It's not just not punishing but also showing goodness. If we believed in a God who didn't punish evil that's deserved and yet didn't get grace, didn't give grace, what does that ultimately lead to? That ultimately leads to annihilationism, where, okay, I won't send you to hell for all eternity, but I'm not going to send you to heaven either. And so that would lead us, without grace, we're annihilated. That's the logical conclusion. Now, we have some categories of grace that are, are useful, Common grace, common grace is simply God's goodness and patience in sustaining his creation in general, sustaining mankind in particular. You think about the fact that scientists still have never found um, a planet just like planet Earth that could sustain life. Can I give you a little, just to avoid all the suspense, they never will. They just won't. I, I don't have any doubt about that at all. There are benefits of common grace. It's our, our physical lives, our, our families, human society, goodness in general, uh, the experience of creativity and beauty. All of these things are God's common grace. This is why we don't, uh, and it's wrong to have ill feelings toward unbelievers. They are created in the image of God. They are enjoying God's common grace. And they're a part of expressing God's common grace. Some of the greatest authors and the greatest artists and the greatest architects were not Christians. They were simply expressing God's common grace. But then, of course, the one we're most familiar with is saving grace. Saving grace is God's goodness extended to the elect to establish a harmonious relationship where a relationship of, of enmity existed prior to that. It's God's goodness extended to the elect to establish a harmonious relationship. And this is, of course, manifested first and foremost in Christ. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not only is saving grace manifested in Christ, but it's given as a gift. It's unmerited. That, that's what grace is. I heard a, a pastor years ago say that, Remember grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good way to remember grace. Romans 11.6, but if if it, that is salvation, is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So you have common grace, saving grace. We could also have the category of sanctifying grace. This is God's goodness extended to his people, those who already have experienced saving grace, to equip them and to strengthen them to follow him faithfully. How terrible would it be if God said, I have saved you from your sin, but I'm going to give you no power whatsoever to follow me. You're just going to live a life of defeat until you die. That would be terrible. And so he gives us sanctifying grace. We get spiritual gifts. Romans 12 tells us about these gifts. That's part of his sanctifying grace. We get strength for trials. 2 Corinthians 12:9. the Apostle Paul says, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. So there's common grace and saving grace and sanctifying grace. I, I, I know that the name Grace Bible Church is, it's, it's rare. There's probably only 10 million other Grace Bible Churches on planet Earth. But it's a great name because it reminds us of what is most important, and that is grace. How does God's grace, His graciousness form a path to the cross? Well, God's grace is expressed in the fact that he has a desire to extend to the elect unmerited favor. Where does this desire come from? We're only told one reason, and that's love. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us. And yet, in order to not violate his own holiness, of course, the penalty for sin still had to be paid. And so his grace comes at a cost, not to us, but the cost came to Christ. So we're still under the big category of God's love, His omnibenevolence. He's compassionate. He's gracious. Next, He is patient. And this is very consistent. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. What's the definition of God's patience? God delays His wrath and pours out His love and grace on creation while sinners are brought to repentance. "'God delays His wrath and pours out His love and grace on creation "'while sinners are brought to repentance.' The Millerites, who are the uh, predecessors of the Seventh-day Adventists in the 1840s, um, they kept setting dates about when Christ was re- going to return. And In fact, they were so adamant about it that a whole group of them um, sold everything that they had, businesses, houses, uh, horses, everything, and uh, bought white robes or made white robes and climbed into trees so that God wouldn't have that extra six feet or so to have to take them up. Um, they climbed down out of the trees because Christ didn't return. Aren't you glad Christ didn't return in the 1840s? None of us would be saved. God is patient. So, in a few days, when you're tempted to throw a brick through your television, I won't say anything else about that. Remember that God is being patient. There are still people yet to be saved. Even as the earth sets itself on fire, there are still those yet to be saved because he's patient. He is so good to us. So how does he express his patience? He chooses to sustain creation after the fall. You know, Eve took one bite of the fruit. God could have said, we're done. But he didn't. He doesn't bring to complete judgment to the sinners while the redemptive plan of God unfolds. The wheat and the tares grow up together. Just once, don't you want to see somebody who's wicked just on national television accidentally drive off a cliff and cheer? We just want to see that. But he lets the wicked go because some of them will come to faith. Some of them will stand before the throne and we'll go, Wow, you made it! It's amazing. He provides the opportunity to repent. How gracious is that? How does patience form a path to the cross? Well, instead of destroying the earth after sin, instead of that, He promised a Savior. He promised a Savior. So God's omnibenevolence is expressed in His compassion, His graciousness, His patience. It's also expressed in His kindness. God is kind. And I think our greatest word to understand this from the Old Testament in particular is chesed. It is is the most important word in all of the Old Testament Good definition for kindness, God has a love for his covenant people that emphasizes his kindness and faithfulness. Hesed is used two hundred and forty five times in the Old Testament and it 's associated with covenant love. Covenant love says, no matter what you do, I will keep my end of the bargain. I will keep my end of the covenant. Some Bibles translate it loving kindness, which isn't really a word. That's a word that's made up, but uh, it, it embodies God's kindness and his love put together. Um, the ESV translates chesed, most often steadfast love. I like that one because it, it implies covenant. It implies commitment. How does chesed, how does hi- kindness of God, how does that form a path to the cross How could a God who is said who is kind, ever throw your salvation away? The cross of Christ has purchased your salvation and his covenant love will keep it. How many people will be saved? Every one of them that God ordained to be saved. Every single one. Because he's kind. He'll never break covenant with you. And then one more, under God's omnibenevolence, he is faithful and true. These two go together very often, so it's useful to put them together. Here's a good definition. God is the only authentic God. And all that he says and does is consistent with the reality as he has decreed it. One more time. God is the only authentic God. And all that he says and does is consistent with the reality as he has decreed it. Biblically, the concepts of faithful, faithfully and true and truth and truthfulness, they they are all together. They're very closely related. What does it mean that he is true? What is the trueness of God? Well, only he is authentically God. This is one of the major themes of the Old Testament. Um, you, you've learned this if you've been here any period of time at all. Genesis 1, the account of creation, is not so much just to tell us how creation happened, although it serves that purpose. The pr- point of The creation account is to give to Israel when they were on the plains of Moab, on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to invade a land that was polytheistic with multiple gods. It was to tell Israel, I am the only true God. I am the creator. I am the one who made everything you see. That was the purpose. And so his trueness, he's the only authentic God. How is it that satan has so deluded mankind in his evil genius satan simply began forming the concept of many many other gods and yahweh is supposed to just get lost in the mix and so the old testament is very much a defense of god as the one and true living god not only is there the trueness of god there's the truthfulness of god God's knowledge and his declarations conform to his character. He always tells the truth. And I gave you some uh, a reference or two up there. Titus 1 verse 2. There's also Psalm 119 verses 145 through 152. That little section of eight verses uh, is all about the fact that God is truthful. So how does the faithfulness and the trueness, the truth of God, how does that form a path to the cross God has said that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin. If he's not faithful and if he's not true, you have no reason to believe that. And so when the Bible says that he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, because he's faithful, because he's true, we can believe that. And there will be a day when that becomes really, really important. Like when your heart is saying, I got about nine beats left, use them wisely that will become very, very important. I've been with enough believers on the brink of death to see a wonderful phenomenon, and that is that the same people who have shivered in fear at dying, and they say, yeah, my theology's solid. I know I'm going to heaven. I just don't want to go through this process. And yet when they get close, over and over and over again, I've seen the Lord give grace to just have them say, come on, any moment now. And to be excited. Because they know that God is faithful and true. That's why we build this theology into our hearts. Because there will be a moment where you need to know that with all of your heart. And not worry. How sad it is to be a Christian. Truly saved. But never given the assurance of God's faithfulness and his truth. And the assurance of your salvation. And to die and go to heaven and go, whew, I'm glad I made it. I don't want to live life that way and you don't either. We're going to be worshiping a faithful and true God. When he said you're going to heaven, he meant it. All of that is under God's omnibenevolence. Now, I I don't know if you want to say that in a prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you're omnibenevolent. I don't think God will be impressed. I just wanted to give you that big word because it's more than just God is love. And I want to just get on the soapbox just for a moment. The love of God, I think, is the most denigrated and twisted attribute of God especially in the American evangelical church because the love of God is reduced to simply the fact that he does nice things for you if you'll ask him the love of God is infinitely bigger than that it it is not the fact that God is there to do nice things for you that's one little tiny piece the love of God is the fact is compassionate He's gracious, he's patient, he's kind, he's faithful. So many facets. The love of God is like a diamond. And you hold that diamond up to the light and it just shows a different color from every angle. And it's beautiful, it's glorious. Let's do another attribute. God is righteous. He's righteous. Let's define the righteousness of God. God always acts in accordance with what is right. Right and is himself the final standard of what is right. God always acts in accordance with what is right, and is himself the final standard of what is right. There is not a standard of right and wrong outside of God. He is the standard. Why does he do what's right? Because he is what is right. God epitomizes what is right. Deuteronomy 32, 4, Psalm 11, verse 7, Psalm 19, verse 9. He is the epitome of that which is right. Jesus... In 1 Peter 3.18, Isaiah 53.11, he is called the righteous one. Um, righteous, by the way, we get that English word from an old English word to, uh, or middle English uh, to be right wise. Right wise means to turn to the right direction, the correct direction. Um, we, even, we might say, uh, go in this direction, go right wise. You would say that in, in, in older times. He is the righteous one. Now here's the question, why is it that whatever conforms to God's moral character is right? Why is that? Is it right because God decided it's right, or is it right because it's who God is? It's kind of both at the same time. But the the main thing to remember, and this is where unbelievers go off track every single day of their lives, you can't use any other standard to judge what's right or wrong. You can't. This is placing ourselves in judgment over God, which unbelievers do all the time. Well, I don't believe the Bible, someone might say. You know what the, the best answer is? The best answer is the Bible doesn't care whether you believe it or not. God is the standard. He is the author of Scripture. And you believing the Bible, you believing God or not is irrelevant. It's immaterial. It won't change anything. What you believe is, is is absolutely inane and so we have to conform to god's moral character god himself is the final standard you can't apply another standard to measure anything this is why i i rail against and i rebel against the phrase that archaeology proves the bible really so i dug up a pot from some ancient civilization i found that pot in second samuel chapter four Oh, good, now I can believe the Bible because I hold this pot in my hand. No, the pot was there whether you found it or not. Does that make sense? Kind of the classic story along these lines, um, in the mid-1800s, there were two things that were happening simultaneously in history, mostly in Europe. The first thing that was happening simultaneously was a massive uh, belief in the, the, the idea of evolution. And this is where we see Charles Darwin, who, by the way, never fully believed that theory himself. He just said, it's a theory. It does not mean I believe it all the way. But it just took off like wildfire. The other thing that happened, and this makes sense to us, is theologians absolutely questioning the the divine nature of Scripture. And they had all of these proofs. And the big one that was in articles all over the place in the 1860s, 1870s, was the fact that the Old Testament lists this massive empire called the Hittite Empire. And nobody's ever found that. Which, by the way, is an argument from silence. Just because you don't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so that was the big proof. Well, in the late 1800s, when some guy was digging out in the Middle East and dug up the Hittite Empire, it destroyed that. Now, and that's really fun, and we enjoy that. But the Bible was true whether we dug up the Hittite Empire or not. It's just God kind of saying, I'm going to stick it to you on this one. And we love that. But God is the final standard. And he has revealed his final standard in one place only, and that is Scripture. And so when anybody wants to say, well, I don't really want to talk about the Bible. Okay, well, what standard would you like to talk about? Well, I want to talk about human morality. Okay, well, where does that come from? Well, my mother taught me. Where did she learn that? Well, her grandmother said, where did she learn that? You know where it's always going to go back to? If they're right, it's always going to go back to Scripture. God is righteous. How does righteousness form a path to the cross? For you to be made righteous, the sacrifice on your behalf had to be perfectly righteous. The price had to be a full price. You could not have a lamb. You could not have a goat. You couldn't even have another human being who is unrighteous. How does that help anybody? Why can an unrighteous human being not pay the price for your sin? Because he has to pay the price for his own sin. He can't pay for yours. So the sacrifice for your sin had to be a perfect sacrifice made by an inherently righteous person. This is where we get uncomfortable in the American evangelical church. God is just. God is just. Every time an election doesn't go the way that we want it to, um, evangelicals say, well, you know, our nation is in trouble. Our nation's been in trouble since 1776 because it's filled with sinners. It doesn't mean God's not just. It just means he hasn't expressed his justice the way we want him to yet. What's the definition of God's justice? God's justice. It's related to his righteousness. In fact, in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for righteousness and justice are very much related. God's official righteousness in that he requires other moral agents to adhere to his standard. Did you catch that? It is the righteousness of God is over here. The justice of God is his requirement that others act like him, which is a problem because we can't. And therefore he dispenses justice. We see that God's judgment is final and correct. Romans 2, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. God will punish evil. This is punitive justice. His punishing justice. Righteousness requires that sin be punished. And this is the classic illustration. What would you think of a judge who let off a convicted murderer and said, Oh, it's okay. I'm having a good day today. You can just leave. What would we call him? We would call him a wicked, unjust judge. God will reward the good. That's remunerative justice. Giving a reward for goodness. Problem? Only the righteous can truly do good. And so we're not good. There's no no one good. No, not one. And so we had to have imputed righteousness. We had to have substituted righteousness. Our righteousness is by faith. So let me put it to you this way. You will be rewarded for all eternity because you traded in your unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you think about it this way it's like, it's like the greatest artist in the history of the world coming to you, giving you a painting, and saying, Sign your name on it. Now sell it for a million dollars. That's a gift in a very small sense. How does justice form a path to the cross? God will never overlook sin permanently. When you read the news and you say, okay, like we did years ago, uh, I'm not gonna watch the news anymore. It's too depressing. We did that for a long time. We're about to do it again for four more years. God will never overlook a sin permanently, ever. Every single sin, every single conspiracy, every single lie, every single theft, every single um, act of of um, corruption there will be payment made and it'll be expressed Romans 20 says the books will be opened every one of them are being recorded that's going to be a great day I've asked the Lord for 50 yard line tickets I I, I don't know what I'll get but we will be there to see that God is just this is by the way a great question to ask an unbeliever because almost every unbeliever if the, do you believe God exists? Well, yeah, I mean, I see stuff around me. I think God exists. Do you believe is a just God or an unjust God? You know, ask an unbeliever, nine out of 10 of them will say, in some sense, I think he's a just God. Now they might say, well, how come there's all this evil in the world? But you can say, do you think God has done good things, has done just things? And most will say, yes. What then should he do with you? What would God's justice do with you? And that will lead them down one of two paths. They'll either say, I'm a pretty decent person, so God will be kind to me. Then that's where you start asking about the real nature of their sin. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? And so forth. Or it will lead them down to, if God is just, I'm in trouble. And so that's a, the justice of God is a great way to have a conversation with an unbeliever. Let's do um, one more. Two more, if we can get to them. God is immutable. Immutable. He is immutable. Short definition, God is unchangeable in his essence, character, and will. He is unchangeable in his essence, character, and will. Here's some ways he does not change. His being is immutable. Psalm 102, verse 26, he he doesn't change who or how he is. His truthfulness is immutable. Numbers 23, 19, his plan is immutable. Psalm thirty-three, eleven. God has never changed his plan. The, the redemptive plan of God has always been the same. His mercy is immutable. Aren't you glad for that? Psalm 103, 17, his mercy never changes. His faithfulness is immutable. Malachi 3, 6, and his goodness is immutable. James 1, 17, that's just a short list. Everything about God is unchangeable, so you really could just list all of his attributes what does this mean for us? It means that God is dependable. God is dependable, and I, I I know that sounds really basic. And you say, "Well, I you know learned that when I was in third grade." I'm amazed at how when when trials hit even mature believers, they suddenly start treating God like He's not dependable, like you know, Lord, what are you doing? And 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 crying out to God like like this is me we're talking about. How come I'm suffering? And you know, what about this guy over here? He really deserves it. No, God is is dependable. Now here's the debate, and we want to camp on this for a bit. The Bible does speak of God changing his mind. It does say that. Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. King James Version says God repented. The word repentance in Hebrew doesn't mean to turn from sin. It just means to turn. And so it says God turned. Judges 2.18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. In other words, God changed his response to those that were worshipers. So, how do we understand this? Well, there's kind of two extremes that we don't want to go to. The, the one extreme is, uh, is under the category of classic theology. Classic theology says that God is utterly incapable of any change whatsoever, and to give what's even a perceived change in direction at all is to say that God can change his character. Well, that can't be at all. The Bible is full of examples of, the, of God giving choices and responding accordingly. God responds. He never reacts. There's a difference between the two. But here's an example. Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. That's a, th- th- there's a technical name for that. It's the if-then statement. God uses those all the time. So one, one uh, complete uh, side of the spectrum we don't want to go to. One extreme is the classic theological view that says God cannot appear to change anything. And so they have to explain away these things. That if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God really means something else. The other side of that extreme is what is called open theism. Open theism has been popular in the last 30 years. It's very dangerous. It says that God adjusts and changes as he interacts with humans, that he doesn't have everything mapped out. Let me put it this way. If you're an open theist, God has a sketch of his plan, just not a blueprint. And that He's adjusting the sketch as he goes. And in fact, open theism says that God doesn't fully know everything that's going to happen. He's just the best responder and reactor in all of history. That he can always make things go his way. Well, this can't be. If open theism is true, then ultimately there's a question as to whether or not God will complete his divine plan and decree. There has to be that question. And by the way, if open theism is true, it is theoretically possible for every single person on earth to reject the gospel. And if that's the case, then, then Christ died for nothing. So classic theology, God can't even appear to change whatsoever. Open theism, ah, God changes all the time. It's not a big deal. So how do we understand then the biblical accounts of divine change? And I put change in quotes. How do we understand that? Well, I had a great slide planned. There it is. <clears throat> so there's the debate. Classic theology, open theism. I didn't get to that slide there it is right there, moving right along. Sorry. How do we understand the accounts of divine change? What we perceive as divine change always happens in the context of personal relationships. Every single time. If God is utterly incapable of all conceivable change, then how are relationships even possible? Let me put this in human terms. If you tell your son or daughter i told you i'm going to punish you if you don't clean your room well i clean my room i'm sorry i can't change i'm going to punish you anyway that's not a relationship that now becomes abusive and so change and response is part of relationship another thing to think about what we perceive as divine change always falls under the broader scope of his overarching plan Does God know, and has he planned, every single thing that is going to happen in all the universe, in every relationship? Absolutely. Does that also include real life choices? It does. If you've come to faith in Christ, you will go to heaven. You will be made into the image of Christ. But you have choices. As a Christian, you have choices. Men, you have a choice to love your wives or be difficult and receive the discipline of God. Women, you have a choice to submit to your husbands or be rebellious and receive the discipline of God. And these choices have an impact on us. How do they impact us? 1 Corinthians 3, they impact your heavenly reward. Does God already know exactly what reward you will receive? Yes, but it is also based on a real human choice that you have. One more thing to think about. What we perceive as divine change Never even comes close to affecting the fact that God is unchangeable in his essence, character, and will. Never changes his essence, character, or will. How many people will be in heaven someday? Exactly the number that God chose before the foundation of the world. Within that umbrella, are there real choices that we have? Absolutely. How does God's immutability, his unchanging nature, how does that form a path to the cross? Genesis 3.15 God promised the Savior would come and crush Satan's head. Aren't you glad that he never deviates from his plan? He always keeps his promises. Let's do one more. And this is one that, um, probably not a common word. God is impassible, Not impossible, but impassable. This is from the Greek word apathes. We get the word apathetic from us. From this word. Now before you think what God is apathetic like oh, I couldn't care less one way or another no apathy apathetic to us means I don't care one way or another but apathes means lacking pathos lacking feeling lacking emotion don't stop right there we have to keep going from that it doesn't mean that God has no emotions it means that God can't be impacted by other things. Here's a good definition to start. All God's actions flow from his own will. No experience can be imposed upon him from an external force. All God's actions flow from his own will. No experience can be imposed upon him from an external force. Now, this doesn't mean that God has no emotions. Scripture tells us that God feels love, delight, pleasure, anger, divine hatred even, sorrow, But God transcends any emotion that's associated with human characteristics because some of them are sinful. We have the emotions of obsession and greed and fits of anger and malice and despair. So how do we understand the emotion of God? Well, again, like anything, there's two extremes. One extreme is that descriptions of God's emotions are just simply attributing to God emotions as a, as a way to describe Him, to make Him more understandable. Now, if that's true, then His love for us has no emotion involved with it whatsoever. Again, let's use the example of marriage. Men, try telling your wives, I will care for you, I will provide a mortgage payment for you, I will buy food for you, I will buy clothes for you, but I have no emotion involved in that whatsoever. How far is that going to get you? you say, well, then you don't really love me because there is emotion involved. So one extreme describes God, God's emotions as just a way to describe Him, but they're not real. The other extreme, and this is American evangelicalism, is that God responds to his own emotions and changes his mind as a result. How many people have ever said, Lord, if you save me in this situation, I'll serve you all of my days. What is that trying to do? That's trying to manipulate God using emotion. God, as if God's saying, oh good, the kingdom of heaven just wouldn't have been the same without you. It's making God thankful that we would dare to come to him. So how do we understand this? I think there's a good mediating view. God has emotions, but they're always consistent with his character. He has emotions, they're always consistent with his character. The impassibility of God It says that no part of his creation can inflict suffering on God. No part of his creation can inflict pain on God. And no part of creation can inflict distress on God apart from his will. Apart from his will. The flip side, we could also say that the impassibility of God says that no part of his creation can can instill happiness to God. Can give God joy he didn't previously have apart from his will does God receive joy in your salvation absolutely the the heaven rejoices when you're when you're saved Uh, Luke 15 tells us that but it was inside his will D.A. Carson gives a great quote on this if God loves it is because he chooses to love if he suffers it is because he chooses to suffer God is impassable in the sense that He sustains no passion, no emotion that makes Him vulnerable from the outside over which He has no control or which He has not foreseen. So, how does God's impassibility, how does this form a pathway to the cross? The suffering that Christ suffered was God's choice. He wasn't backed into a corner. He wasn't given no other option. The compassion and love that God has for us was his choice. And although Scripture does not tell us what God the Father was feeling at the moment of the cross, don't think for a moment that God the Father didn't have emotion even as he placed his own son in that in the in the pathway of his own wrath. We don't want to separate that. What emotion did Jesus feel on the cross? anguish and pain and the anxiety of knowing what was about to happen to him and so god's impassibility nothing's ever forced on him but he feels deeply how do we know this because we're made in his image you think you feel deeply just multiply that times infinity and that's how god feels But nothing will ever force himself on you, uh, on will force force itself on him. And let me tell you one reason you should be very, very glad for this. Think about the last time you knowingly did something that you know was against God's will, and you just said, "You know what? Forgiveness is easier to ask than permission. I'm just going to do it anyway." Aren't you glad that God didn't get so angry that He said, "I'm done with this salvation business with you"? Even your Idiocy can't impact how God feels about you. How does he feel about you? He gets angry at sin and he disciplines, but he will always love you. He will always be with you. He will always um, be the same one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. So I'm glad God is impassible because if he wasn't, we should be terrified. But he's impassable. He won't be affected from an external source he can't possibly be all right everybody take a deep breath there we go let it out it's like that old aerobics instructor right you did really well we'll continue this in two weeks we'll finish the attributes of god i hope that you've seen that um okay i can't understand god in 50 minutes that's not possible but we did a little bit toward that let's pray thank you father for the attributes of god they are overwhelming our our brains aren't even capable of paying attention this long and yet these are divine truths that we should be in awe of i pray lord that we would be worshipers who love you for your omnibenevolence your incredible patience your kindness your goodness all of these glorious things lord that make up who you are the 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 ways that you have described yourself such that we may understand you to some level. We thank you and praise you. We ask you, Lord, to make us worshipers in response. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.